Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Ken Wei. On January the 1st, the very first day of 2024, China and the United States will mark the 45th anniversary of diplomatic relations. In 1971, a secret trip made by then U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger brought China and U.S. relations on a normal track later. Over the decades, Kissinger witnessed the pendulum of bilateral ties swinging back and forth. He visited China over a hundred times in his century-long life and was called by Chinese President Xi Jinping as an old friend of China. Today, let's hear recollections from people in the know of Henry Kissinger and their insights on the prospect of China-U.S. relations. We live in a world in which technology develops capability that make conflict between great powers and especially between high-tech powers a matter that could lead to national and global destruction. So the leaders of the two countries at this time have a special obligation to work out what I would define as principles of coexistence. How can two societies that have a substantially different history, one going back thousands of years and having evolved a philosophy of governance and foreign policy, and the other one with a shorter lifespan, but having built its society on a series of pragmatic experiences, their perception of the world at this time, because confrontation that might lead to, to conflict and even military action must be avoided and a better world needs to be built. Each side should make efforts to start a dialogue by which they can understand fully the core interests of the other side and to act in a manner respectful of these concerns. The first time Dr. Kissinger came to China, he said that it was global change that brought us here, and it is reality that took us here, and the reality that will also determine our future. We are now facing a choice whether China and the U.S. should continue to live in peace or move towards confrontation and conflict, whether we should stick to dialogue and cooperation or return to the days of estrangement and antagonism. So my question is why some people believe that China will tie its future to competition with the United States and seek hegemony over the United States. China is one of the biggest beneficiary and contributor to the existing international order. Why should we challenge and reshape the international order? China represents one-fifth of global population, and we have extensive links with the rest of the world. Is it possible to contain China? Will containing China solve the real problems in the United States? Will there be a winner in China-U.S. conflicts given the trend of globalization and nuclear deterrence? Will the world have to make a choice between the two countries? Does it serve the interests of the U.S. and American people to create an enemy and put the country and the world in a dangerous situation? 
If we do not break such absurd logic, any trichotomy or three-point approach is just old wine in a new bottle, and it will bring nothing but wars and conflicts. I do hope scholars can work together to break this dilemma with conscience and intelligence. We all remembered how Asia or the Asia-Pacific region looked like 50 years ago. When you compare and contrast today and yesterday, you can see countries including China and the U.S. and other Asia-Pacific countries. We need to make the right choice of cooperation. Over the past decades, among the achievements that this region has made, the normalization of China-U.S. relations played a huge role in producing those achievements. Of course, we commend other countries for their efforts and contribution, but I think it's fair to say that the normalization of China-U.S. relations contributed a lot. If this was the right thing to do, why are some people trying to turn back the wheel? Do they want to resume war, conflict, turbulence, poverty, distrust and instability? Do they want all that again? This is something worthy of our attention. I think now we face a much more difficult foreign policy or diplomatic challenge, which is decide what we are for. We need a positive agenda. And, I, uh, and in my own experience, it's often more difficult to intellectually develop and then build political support for positive agendas than it is uh, negative agendas. And I think to add to it even more is we are going to have inevitable disagreements. So the challenge will be, can we preserve and ideally expand areas of cooperation, even though we have inevitable areas of, of competition and disagreement? For dialogue to be effective, you have to know what you are talking about and what the purpose of the dialogue is. And this is where I am most troubled about the current state of U.S.-China relations. We are not defining our strategic objectives toward China in a meaningful way. In other words, you can't just refer to the existence of competition, rivalry, cooperation as elements of the U.S.-China uh, relationship. You have to say, what is your goal? Is your goal to win the competition? Is your goal to let cooperation become the dominant feature of the relationship again? And we are not defining that. What we are seeing now is a progressive breakdown of the global order. And it seems to me that China and the United States need to begin to address that question. My view is that China and the United States need to think seriously about what type of world order is compatible with the interests of other countries. Since the Trump administration started the trade war, the bilateral economic relations have not been as in the past. Though things are improving, it's still not satisfactory. When I was in the United States, there are many American experts 
who want trade with China, and they are optimistic about the Chinese market. When they say something positive about China, they'll be accused by some Americans of, as putting their business before their national interests. If the situation continues like this, how are we going to show the benefits of a healthy China-U.S. relationship? I think order is a very important concern. The U.S. should support China. This is a sound order. At the same time, the U.S. should work with China to build international order, which was emphasized by Dr. Kissinger. So in my view, it's my duty to work with the U.S. to uphold the global order so the two countries can sit down and work together. If you look at the U.S. relationship with China, actually dating back even before our Constitution, uh, there were three themes that keep recurring. One is the prospect of China as a great commercial opportunity or dream. And I referenced Robert Morris, who was the financier of our revolution, sent a book or sent a ship called The Empress of China in 1784 with Jingsheng from Appalachia that made a huge profit. And ever since then, Americans thought there'd be great opportunities to make uh, economic uh, gains in China. But it's always a light that just glimmers slightly over the horizon. I have a book in my basement uh, that State probably knows by Carl Crow, written in 1937, saying 400 million customers of China. This is always the, the dream. But there was a big disappointment in the business and economic community, and that will be an issue that cannot be ignored. I totally agree that we must have the objective in, my mind, in our mind when we manage our relations what we are aiming at. And I also agree that the ultimate question is what kind of world order we want to build, we want to have. We in China, we don't want to get rid of the existing order totally and replace it with something entirely new. We still want to maintain and safeguard the international order with the UN as a core. Now people talk about the need for the so-called guardrail for our relations. I understand what they mean, and I don't question their intention. But the problem is that if we don't know where we are heading, what is the use of these guardrails? If the relations are going the wrong way, what is the use of the guardrails to help us to keep things going in the wrong direction? So we must have a, we must try to reach a mutual understanding about what kind of world order we want to have. For us, it's quite clear. We want to build a community of nations with a shared future. And that community of nations include China, of course, also includes United States. It's all inclusive. It's open. It should be a joint venture, not only between our two countries, but with the entire international community. I still remember some years ago, then President Obama invited the ambassador of China, Russia, Britain, France, Germany, and the European Union to talk to some of the senators to explain to them the usefulness of the Iranian nuclear deal. Then in a couple of years, 
United States just withdraw from the deal. So this kind of on-off approach is destroying, is hurting people's confidence in American foreign policy. And in his book, Ambassador Zelik talk about the traditions of American foreign policy. One of them is the belief that America policy should serve a larger purpose. So my question is, is the larger purpose still there? And what is the larger purpose today? We have a serious problem in Sino-American relations, and we need a serious dialogue to deal with it. On my first visit to China, and actually in my first speech, I said something about having arrived in what to us is a land of mystery. And Zhou Enlai interrupted and asked me what I thought was so mysterious about China. And I did not give a very brilliant answer. And he said, perhaps what we should aim for is that we, as we meet, we should become less mysterious to each other. I think this is still our challenge. Some progress was made in the first 50 years, but we now face a world of, of different complexities with different evolutions. And we have to begin to define for each other what we consider the obstacles to progress and what we consider the goals we can achieve. Following the mid-November meeting between Chinese President Xi Jinping and his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden in San Francisco, how can China and U.S. build bridges of communication, open up window of cooperation as well? The president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, Steve Orleans, had his first interview in China after the pandemic, and he has high hopes that people-to-people -people and business exchanges can be the blast of China-U.S. relations. He also points out that the politicians today need to emulate the courage of political leaders in the 1970s to revive the relationship. We hear from audience on how improving China-U.S. ties can benefit the vast majority of the people in both nations and certainly beyond. Listening is a great capability. Do you think Washington is listening to Beijing carefully, particularly the kind of suggestions? You now need to divide Washington into sectors. Um, you know, the Congress seems uh, very set in its views of China, uh, though there, there seems to be some changes occurring, which is good. The executive branch is certainly opening, open to listening. Um, I expect, you know, I was pleased to see some senior officials from the United States, from the, US, the executive branch of the U.S. government in Beijing, as I'm in Beijing, trying to work on setting up meetings for the Secretary of the Treasury, the Secretary of Commerce coming to China, which will be productive. It's important that we have increased government-to-government, -government, diplomatic discussions between government. But it's even more important today that we restart the people-to-people -people 
relations. You know, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations has since 1966 focused on people-to-people exchanges. Then in 1972, we obviously hosted the ping-pong team's visit, the Chinese ping-pong team's visit to the United States. What we need, need now is 100 new ping-pong teams to come from the United States to China and to go from China to the United States. Obviously, I'm figurative, right. not li- literal, <laughs> but that's very important that we do because the people-to-people relationship forms the foundation for the overall relationship. Historically, the Congress, the President, listened to the people. So if the people begin to speak out, that will be productive. How much do you see if increased interactions between the two sides, particularly at the people's level, will be able to reduce misunderstanding and correct the path in the way of communications? I think it creates many different channels of communications. So when we have, you know, when we're seeing each other every day, I mean, when they're hundreds of thousands of Chinese going to the United States, hundreds of thousands of Americans coming to China. Those interactions, by definition, clear up misunderstanding. And what that ultimately will do is, over time, it will gradually shift the policies of the United States to be more constructive and of China to be more constructive. Uh, In my view, as I've stated in previous interviews, Both governments need to be changing their policies in order to have a relationship that benefits the American people and the Chinese people. Business interactions are increasing rather than decreasing, uh, shall I say, if you look at the numbers between China and the United States. How do you see the huge contract between the business landscape and the political landscape? You know, businesses need to return and start interacting. When the travel restarts, it's going to go back to where the Americans who have invested in China will be talking to the Chinese government. The Chinese who have invested in America will be talking to the U.S. government. And that will lead to improvements in the business-to-business relationship. The business community needs the Chinese government to be more transparent, to be more open, to do things which lead to increases in U.S. investment in the United States. The Chinese businesses need the American government to be more transparent in what kind of investments can be made by Chinese companies in the United States, what investments can't be made in the United States. So how from a perspective of your job, how do you see, you know, things would become what it is today? And how much difficulties are still ahead? There are a lot of difficulties and the trust deficit is serious. But I think when the people to people relationship improves, it will be from the people to the government. The people are looking for a way to improve this relationship. And the people in the United States are too. You know, they understand the costs of this bad relationship. What I say in my speeches, um, you know, in the United States are, you know, 
both countries should end tariffs tomorrow. Just end them. They punish the peoples of both countries. And they predominantly, in the United States, they predominantly punish lower income Americans. So rich people, you know, the Congressional Budget Office thinks it's about $1,000 a family, the cost of, uh, of the uh, tariffs. Well, you're rich, you know, $1,000, you don't care. If you're a lower income Americans, you need to decide, do I not buy my kids shoes or pants or a new shirt or a new jacket or textbooks because I need to make up that $1,000 somewhere? That's not fair. We need to reopen the consulates. The closing of the consulates was terrible policy. Mm. How do you see people can get more balanced information about each other? You know, openness and transparency uh, is very important. We need to agree on what data is truly national security and what data can be transferred. You know, we need to find ways uh, through openness and transparency to cooperate on health care. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very dangerous, the lack of cooperation that we've had over this 39 months. I mean, people die because we haven't been cooperating enough. I think back 10 way to, to Ebola and how United States and Chinese scientists work together to combat that potential ep epidemic. And then I look at what happened over the last 39 months. You know, I talk with healthcare experts in China and the United States, and they cry out, they cry out for more cooperation. And they wanna, you know, they can do it, and they will do it. And once we, you know, it's like a bad marriage. You can't fix a bad marriage with one magic bullet. You need to kind of work on each individual thing. And as you work on one, then you can work on another and you rebuild uh, trust and you rebuild the relationship. And right now, the United States and China, they're still married, but they're in a bad marriage. <laughs> that analogy is always interesting. You know, Steve, many years ago, people, last question, my last question, uh, many say your job was actually the best in the world a few years ago. And now people say, how could you still be able to do your job? <laughs> uh, that certainly reflects the changes that we see in the world. But tell me more about how you are trying to do your job. You know, um, we're doing it by, by continuing to run track two dialogues, mm -hmm. continuing to try to educate the American public mm -hmm. by having our YouTube channel uh, be viewed now by more hundreds of thousands of Americans. So that's helping on kind of my trying to do my job well. But I always think of, uh, you know, there was a foreign affairs article. It asked Americans, uh, uh, 70 American China experts, uh, do you think American policy towards China is overly hostile? And they gave you a one to five uh, score you know, five, it was overly hostile. I said, easy, five, of course it's overly hostile. Then they said, uh, one to 10, what's your level of confidence that is overly hostile? Easy, 10. 
And then the results came out, and there were only four people who agreed with me. So some of your colleagues asked me, isn't it difficult that you're such a small minority? And I said, no, it's not. I said, look at the four people who agreed with me. Ambassador Stapleton Roy, former Assistant National Security Advisor Jeff Bader, Lee Chung from Brookings. If I'm going to fight a war, I want to be in the trenches with those people because they're really smart and able. Second, it's not the first time I've been a political minority. My opposition to the war in Vietnam when I was young, you know, when we first went and demonstrated against the American government, it was... You know, we were thousands, and then we were tens of thousands, and then we were hundreds of thousands, and then we were millions, and then we changed the U.S. government's policy. And maybe that's what's going to happen here. We're first going to be a small group, and I'm seeing more people, more articles, more opposition to this overly hostile environment. And last but not least is I'm sure I'm right. That's my earlier interview with Steve Ordians, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. His very first interview after three years of pandemic with a Chinese media organization. And that's all the time we have for today. If you'd like to know more, search World Insight on our YouTube channel. Follow us on X and Facebook. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of the team. Thanks for being with us. Bye now.